Hello and welcome to the Applied Innovations Podcast. I am your host, Raphael, and this is your source for manufacturing insights, best practices, and technology. In this episode, we are talking about how using hard science in microscopes can improve the automotive industry's final products. We are taking a look at a sophisticated kind of microscope that looks at the Raman spectrum to help us answer questions on how to improve car batteries, vehicle lubricants, and far more. To better understand all the complex science and hardware, I'm joined by Tim Presnick. He has been working with Raman Confogel microscopes for decades and has been helping a variety of industries find new ways to use this technology to improve their research and development, verification, and production. I want to thank Renishaw for lending Tim to us for this conversation and also for sponsoring the show. For additional information and videos on any equipment we cover today, go to renishaw.com or click the links in the show notes. And now here's my conversation with Raman spectroscopy expert, Tim Presnick. Hello, Tim. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? How are you? Not too bad. So I guess for the uninitiated, could you tell us uh, more or less what is Raman and Raman spectroscopy, especially when you are trying to gather information, these pieces of data. Uh, most of our listeners probably know the manufacturing side of things, and this probably leans more into the more hard sciences and, and things like that. Is that right? Yeah, I would think that like if we're, if we're sort of pushing this conversation towards an automotive industry, right? So I think within any of the automotive companies and then also the companies that support automotive industry, there's going to be some level of either an R&D lab or a materials characterization lab. And so that's where uh, we are really seeing the Raman systems being applied. So if your audience is uh, familiar with you know, those kind of labs, then that's where you're gonna find the Raman systems. We also find the Raman systems uh, within a, a production environment. So if we're gonna try to do some sort of quality control on something that's being manufactured, like silicon carbide wafers or LEDs or batteries, things like that, then these are uh, places where you might see a process type Raman system as well that helps to maintain the quality of the instrument as it's being produced, or at least to provide that confirmation. So we're definitely seeing Raman being applied in a lot of different application areas. It's a little bit different than, let's say, in the pharmaceutical industry, where you know, the, the use of Raman spectroscopy can be right at the dock. So when they're starting to receive the raw components or the raw ingredients that go into the pharmaceutical products, um, they're qualifying from their suppliers that uh, what was delivered was what they actually purchased. And so it, it, it's, and they're using Raman system at the dock to do that. But I think in the automotive industry, it's more about making improvements in the quality of the materials, ensuring proper production of those materials. And then there's also this, this facet, which I call uh, sort of corporate forensics. So if something has failed, why did it fail? How did it fail? Um, what caused that failure? And so Raman spectroscopy is used within that industry quite a lot to try to figure out what that problem is. So you can avoid it in the future and just make better improvements in the products that way. Could you give me an example of that? I'm really curious how that forensic side of things kind of applies in the automotive yeah. field. Um, so we, we see it a lot in especially things like automotive paints or automotive glasses, uh, glass. So if there is some sort of like a speck of something that has embedded itself within the primer or uh, maybe within the glass itself, you have a bubble and, and what's in that bubble. So Raman spectroscopy has the ability to penetrate through 
the clear layers of material. So if it's clear glass or clear coat on the, on the automotive paint, uh, Raman spectroscopy can penetrate down through that. My general thought is that as long as you can see it, as long as you can visualize it, uh, you can focus a laser beam on it and be able to characterize it using Raman spectroscopy. So that leads to your original question, what is Raman spectroscopy, right? Raman Spectroscopy was named after Chandraskar Raman, who was the person who received the Nobel Prize in 1928 for discovering the technique or first observing the technique. It's a really interesting um, thing where his first paper, where he published the, the results of his experiment, I can't remember what journal it was in, but it's not like a scientific paper that we read today. It was literally probably three or four paragraphs and it was just kind of written where he's talking about, you know, the, the basic experiment that he did and the observations that he had. And he referred to the scattered photons that had either gained or lost energy, in his case, lost energy. The scattered photons that have lost energy as they interacted with the, the sample or the molecules that he, he placed within the, the collimated beam of light. So he referred to that as a, a feeble intensity. And normally, as a Raman spectroscopist, we talk about um, Raman spectroscopy being a, a, a technique where you're looking at very weak intensity in terms of the photons. But the, just the use of the word feeble, I, I think that was kind of interesting. But his general experiment was to take a telescope, focus it at the sun, or point it at the sun, take a ton of light that's coming from the, the sun itself. So I believe this was a 10-inch refractor, or maybe some sort of 10-inch, um, probably um, not refractor, because that would be a huge telescope, but a 10-inch telescope pointed at the sun, um, taking that light, collimating it out, and then you would take two filters, either, um, and, and in his case, I believe it was a, a blue filter and a yellow filter, and so you would take a uh, the blue filter and put it into the beam path, which is the white light coming from the sun, and so after that, you have nothing but blue light, and then if you put a green filter into that blue light path, you would have no light after that because the green filter would absorb all that blue light and there would be no green light associated with that. So you would have no light coming through. But if you put a sample between those two filters, then the blue light interacts with the sample in some way. And then those photons that have interacted with the sample have changed in energy. So they change their color just a little bit such that you can now see a little bit of green light coming through the filter. And so that was the observation. You see this, this slight change in the color of the photon or the energy of the photon as it interacts with the sample. And this was what, was, uh, what they were looking for, because uh, there was something called the Compton effect that they were applying to x-rays at that time. And it was believed that the same thing would happen with photons. And so they were up, up, up trying to observe it. And what was interesting is that he, um, you know, based off of his observations, he quickly received the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1928. Um, and so it was something that uh, was very quickly done. So, and so let me understand this a little bit better. Um, you have light changing color, uh, essentially. And mm -hmm. what assumptions were made by that specifically? Because that doesn't seem that big a deal. Like, okay, light change. Like, why is that of significance? Well, it is a big deal because it, it, it just means that a photon, normally what happens is, let, let's say you take a laser beam, right? Like a laser pointer and you point it at the wall. You have a red laser pointer, you're pointing it at the wall. All you see is red light and that's called Rayleigh scattering. So the, the red light that you're seeing, it hasn't changed in its energy at all. It's just 
scattered off of the sample and you know it, there's nothing there that's really useful to us in terms of trying to identify the molecular content. Um, but one out of every million of those red photons interacts with the paint that's on the wall. And when it interacts with that paint, it may either give energy to the, the paint molecules, in which case that paint molecule has a little bit more energy in it, and then it releases that energy, and you're seeing that, um, that, that photon that's scattered off has, because it's, it's, it's hit that paint molecule and it scatters off, um, it has a little bit less energy than it had when it was in, like hitting that paint molecule. Okay. And so it changes its energy and it changes that, it, its color. And that change in energy is dependent upon what the molecule was that it interacted with, or in particular, the, the bond that it, it interacted with, that particular photon. And so, so you'll the see change of color is basically telling you what that thing is made of, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. And okay. so that's the general idea is that when you see these changes in energy or these changes in color of the scattered photons, that's telling you what molecular bonds exist on the material uh, that you're looking at. And the spectrum that you acquire, um, the spectrum is just a plot of uh, intensity of this scattered energy or the scattered photons. Um, as a function of wavelength. But in this case, we, we do it relative to the laser line. So we look at something called Raman shift. So the shift away from the original color of the laser. And that tells us what the, uh, we, we see that plot. And those, those peaks that we see within those plots are typically very narrow, very sharp, and they're very indicative of the molecular content of the material. So we see chemical ID being something that's very simple to do with Raman spectroscopy. Some of the advantages of Raman spectroscopy compared to other techniques is that it's a non-destructive technique, so long as we don't put too much laser power on the sample. And then beyond that, it's also a technique that gives you very good chemical ID down to about a one micron analytical spot size. So the spatial resolution is good. It's a non-destructive technique. You can use it in aqueous solutions. So for doing like characterization of, of batteries, if you're cycling batteries, then potentially you're, you're looking at electrodes and surfaces. So we're not concerned about the solution that the electrode is in or anything like that. So then it's um, a very easy technique to integrate with other types of measurements or within different types of experiments. So if I'm building a battery for a, an electric vehicle or something like that, that would be more the specific use, just making sure you're making batteries that are of better quality, essentially, or checking, I guess, both, uh, making sure that they are of good quality to start with, but then what made it a bad battery after the fact? Is that more or less what you're saying? Yeah, I think right now you're seeing it more about making improvements in the quality of the battery. Um, so how often um, you can recharge that battery without having that, um, that battery lose any of its storage capability. How quickly can you charge that battery without damaging it? So we're characterizing the materials and we may be cycling the battery and either looking at cross sections of the battery or looking at the surface of an electrode and just monitoring how that chemistry is changing as the, the, uh, the cycling of the battery occurs. And then also you're looking at the different types of materials that may go into the battery and just characterizing those as well. 
So is this actively being used in industry at the moment? Yeah, I mean, for in terms of automotive applications, it's all over the place. I, like I mentioned, definitely you see it in these materials characterization labs for these sort of corporate forensic type applications, just trying to figure out, you know, what what is that problem and how do you how do you identify what that issue is? But you're also seeing it, you know, with the with the goal of potentially generating a all electric product line for automotive then certainly we're seeing a lot of applications within just battery research and maybe also uh, hydrogen fuel cell research. So the idea of, of just energy storage in general, that's a really big one. But also looking at things like silicon carbide wafers, which go into the drivetrain of the electric motors, or maybe looking at making improvements in the, um, the LEDs, making sure that they're less or more energy efficient and brighter. So you're also seeing things like that. So trying to make general improvements in the, the, the product itself, but then also there's, you still have the fundamental applications, which are uh, improvements in the, the brakes, improvements in the paints, improvements in the glasses, uh, the, like the windows and everything else that go into the automotive products. So you're seeing lots and lots of applications there. So yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, there's many, many places where Raman spectroscopy can be applied. But the, the biggest applications that I'm seeing nowadays are, are more towards looking at things like lubricants and films, um, and then also looking at, you know, just battery technology and LEDs and things like that. I had no idea it was so widespread. It seems like something this, it doesn't, you're cutting metal, you know, that's what you always think of when you're building a car. It's just like, oh, you're going to cut metal, you're going to make a seat. I think what's surprising to me is how inexpensive cars are, like, based off of how much technology goes into a car. And I think it's just a volume game. Um, they produce so many cars that, you know, you can end up uh, getting your profits based off of volume. Um, but the research that goes into these vehicles nowadays is just ridiculous. Wow. So tell me then, what kind of technology are industries using to get these benefits, to understand the science that they need to create these better everything? So for Renishaw, we actually produce, um, so, I should say this, the Renishaw Spectroscopy Products Division, right? All we do is we make Raman spectrometers. Now the Raman systems could also be used for photoluminescence and maybe other types of spectroscopy techniques, but fundamentally, primarily, these are Raman spectrometers. We have our key R&D system, which is a, a tool that we call the NVIA. Um, there's three variants on the NVIA. The premier instrument we call the NVIA Contour, system and the contour system has something called live track built into it where live track makes sure that the laser beam that you're focusing down to a one micron volume onto your material is always in focus on the sample that way you can make what's called a confocal raman spectral measurement where the uh, the analysis point is all that you are collecting um, and you're ignoring things that are out of focus. So you get very good spatial resolution by making a confocal Raman measurement. And the intensity of that measurement is based off of the quality of focus. So having, having something like live track where it can make sure that the laser beam is perfectly in focus at all times is critically important for making sure that these measurements occur, especially if you're working on samples where the focus may change uh, dynamically, where you just don't have any be, uh, control over the quality of focus on the material. So this could be large wafers, it could be uh, cycling batteries where um, you're seeing changes in focus as you're changing the, the, the battery charge 
And then beyond that, uh, just seeing different variations in the surface at all, being able to adapt to those is, is very important. So that's what the NVIA system is. It's, it's a research grade Raman microscope system capable of using many different types of laser sources and it basically has everything that any Raman spectroscopist would ever need. But beyond that, what we're seeing is we're seeing that there are a number of researchers out there who want to use Raman spectroscopy for a particular application. So not necessarily within the automotive industry, but we have these um, what we call RA800 series instruments. And these, these instruments, um, and, and right now we have the 802 and the 816. The 802 is a system which is designed ex like specifically for the pharmaceutical industry. And the 816 is designed specifically for looking at biological materials. And so with those type of Raman systems, uh, what we've done is we kitted together everything that we know that researchers within those application areas find useful when using Raman spectroscopy. So all the software, all the sample holding, everything is kitted into just one line item purchase, and it's, it's optimized for that particular application area. So we're making really good use out of it. And then the brand new system for us, and this is a, a kind of an exciting one for the automotive industry, I think. So this is a system that we're calling the Versa. Um, and the idea behind it is that it's a versatile Brahman system. It's a fiber optic based instrument, which is a little bit of a deviation for Vernishaw, but it's a multi-wavelength. So we can have up to three different laser sources in this, this portable Brahman system that is using fiber optic probes to be able to uh, deliver the laser light to the sample and collect the laser light back to the spectrometer. Uh, that gives you a lot of flexibility in terms of how you want to sample. And then the idea of having multiple lasers is great for uh, characterizing a wide range of materials. So I think the, the goal with the, the Versa system is that um, you can now you know, move this Raman system to large samples where it would be difficult to place it underneath an optical microscope. And what's, what's really great about the Versa is that it's a research-grade system. You're not sacrificing the performance of the complicality or the spectral resolution or the sensitivity. And that's really unique because most fiber optic-based systems don't have anywhere near the efficiency of the Versa spectrometer. Um, they don't have the complicality of the NVIA system. So there's some really unique aspects of the Versa spectrometer that um, I think are, it's just going to make it very attractive for a lot of different uh, people who want to use Raman spectroscopy within these application areas. Sounds like you've got a lot of different kinds of microscopes essentially to serve this purpose and different applications too. I think what, what makes my job interesting is that um, you know, Raman spectroscopy, it, we, can, we can apply it to a lot of different application areas. And uh, so like on one day, I, I may be going into a pharmaceutical lab. The next day, I may go into an art conservation lab. Maybe the next day, I'm going into a material science characterization lab. And I'm working with all these different customers who want to use Raman spectroscopy to, to solve their problems, right? Um, but what I struggle with sometimes is... The, this system, the, the Raman systems that Renishaw generate, they have so much capability built into them. We can do particle analysis and particle characterization. We can automate all of that. Um, we have a full suite of um, custom analysis packages based for process analysis. Um, we can also customize the hardware and software for a particular user as well. So there's a lot that we can do, um, but unless, um, 
you know, unless during the conversation with the customer, um, you know, unless that comes out, then I'm probably not going to bring it up in the conversation. I'm just going to focus on, you know, whatever the customer is giving me in terms of, you know, what features I should talk about, about the ramen system. Um, but there's so much these systems can do that it, it's difficult to have that conversation and cover everything in one go. But what I'm really excited about nowadays is um, the particle analysis and the, uh, the library searching capability. So we're, we have now a fully automatic way of being able to identify particle locations and then just automatically go to particle locations and collect Raman data on top of those and then compare those uh, Raman spectra to the databases and then group particles based off of what the chemical content is. And this is where the NVIDIA Contour has some like really great benefits because it will perfectly grab focus on particles of varying size. So if some of your particles are one or two microns and some of your particles are hundreds of microns, it will move to that XY location and automatically grab focus on the top of that particle and give you a perfect spectrum every single time. And that's really unique to the market. There, nothing else exists. The other thing that's really exciting to me is that we have something called Correlate. And Correlate allows you to pull in images based off of maybe an electron microscope or maybe images based off an AFM or some type of other imaging system that you may already have in your lab. So we can open that image in our software and we can use that image to navigate on the, the Raman microscope and define areas where we want to collect Raman data, define areas where we want to generate images. And then we'll, what you're gonna end up doing is you're gonna take Raman data and put it on top of that SEM image, all fully automatic. So it's a really, it just provides greater insight into the materials and really just makes it very clear uh, where your chemical content is. It's really impressive that you can do that all automatically. That, that, that just blows my mind. It's just <laughs> science at a push of a button. I always impress when that happens. Thank you so much, Tim, for talking to us about everything Raman spectroscopy. I'm sure there's far more to touch on and we'll definitely have you back on so you can tell us even more. You must have all kinds of interesting stories, especially if you're doing art restoration, counterfeiting detection and things like that. So We'll have to have you back and talk about that stuff too. Thanks. All right. Well, thank you, Tim. Have a good day. Thanks. And that was my conversation with Raman spectroscopy expert, Tim Presnick. I hope all the information shared with us today is of some value to you and your business. Thank you for listening to the show. And be sure to subscribe to the feed to catch the latest episode immediately upon release. If you have any questions, feel free to email us at appliedinnovationspodcast at gmail.com. Until next time. I am Raphael, and this is the Applied Innovations Podcast. Mm-hmm.